Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. The sermon series that we're in the midst of is inspired and shaped by the book by Peter Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, Moving from Shallow Christianity to Deep Transformation. And each of the chapters, each of the sermons that I teach are complementing one of those chapters. So the, the chapter that this teaching complements today is chapter four in the book called Follow the Crucified, Not the Americanized Jesus. Would anyone else want to trade places and come up and, uh, and preach that one for me today? Not my favorite thing to talk about, but it's, it's important. Now, if you're not following along in the book, it, you don't have to. It's okay. If you just want to show up and hear the messages and worship with your church family, that is completely fine and good. I've designed these sermons so that you don't need to be reading the book along with it. But if you want to do a little bit extra and get a little bit a little bit more fuller understanding of the things that I'm talking about, you can go back to that book, the information's in the bulletin, and read the corresponding chapter. I've decided to call today's teaching, Living in a Country That Is Not Our Home. So what does that have to do with emotional maturity and spiritual depth? Well, we get stuck in our emotional maturing when we have, when we love things in the wrong order. We are human beings, so we are lovers of things and people. We're designed that way, but we get stuck and we get in trouble when we love things in the wrong order. Augustine calls it disordered loves. If you love pizza more than your spouse, that's a disordered love. In Premarital counseling, one of my primary responsibilities is to help these two individuals reorder their loves. The most important aspect of a person's family, other than God before you're married, is your family of origin. And in premarital counseling, my job is to help them shift from your family of origin as the most important aspect of your life to now your spouse is the most important and most formative aspect of your life. Your loyalty is no longer to your family of origin, but to your spouse. That's a hard transition to make, but that's what the Bible refers to as leaving and cleaving. It's reordering your loves. And I think Christians are particularly vulnerable when it comes to disordered loves in the arena of God and country. Um, there's something called syncretism, which is mixing worship of God with other loves and loyalties. It's combining anything else with God. Nothing else deserves to be on the same platform as God. He is above all, and from his platform, uh, he rules sovereignly the world. And anything else that we put up on the platform with God is idolatry and syncretism, mixing things with God that ought not to be mixed. So anything we combine with God is syncretism. If an American pastor goes to India, you'd be surprised at some of the syncretism that happens between Christians and some of their res residue Hindu beliefs. 
So you visit a family in India who are Christians, you'll see some syncretism. Maybe they're lighting candles for um, you know, people in their family who have passed or they're praying for in certain ways. That sounds a lot like reincarnation. There's syncretism. They're mixing things with their Christianity that ought not to be mixed. Well, if a pastor from India comes to the United States, they see the same thing when it comes to our love of God and country. They see syncretism. Why are you guys elevating this to God status? Uh, why is there a cross with a flag wrapped around it? That almost feels idolatrous, and it's confusing sometimes for other pastors from other cultures to see that. And it is a form of syncretism that's verging sometimes, verging towards idolatry putting something else on God level. Uh, there's an important distinction that I think is important. This is just an aside. I'm not going to talk too much about it because it's getting away from my notes, and that's always dangerous. But there was only one theocracy. There's only one theocracy. A theocracy is a, is a nation of people who are specially endowed by God with power and wisdom that he is particularly working with to bless the world, and that was the nation of Israel. We are not a theocracy. Um, there are some good things that we're gonna talk about our, that our country that, that is an expression of God's common grace, but we are not particularly set apart by God to bless the world in the ways that sometimes it's taught. And I think that happens when we start listening you know, more to talking, political talking heads than we do the voice, the ever-living voice of Jesus in Scripture. And this is hard to talk about because sometimes, you know, when you address anything that, um, when someone's talking to me and I immediately get cold and begin to stiff-arm them, that tells me that that's, they're touching an idol. <laughs> So anything that we get inordinately, that we react against, is probably some type of thing that we're worshiping. And so it's a little bit nerve-wracking to talk about this stuff, but hey, it's in chapter four, so we gotta address it. There's a lot to be grateful about our country. There's a lot of common grace that's evident in our country. Common grace is the way that God blesses humanity or a clump of humanity in a particular way. You know, to be a part of God's family, there are certain blessings. If you are in God's spiritual family, you have access to all the blessings of heaven. You are blessed in a you know, specific way. <clears throat> but God blesses humanity in general in different ways as well. Uh, Christopher Wright says, the earth silently administers to us God's provision day in and day out. It's common, common grace. He makes it rain on everybody's crops, not just Christians, everybody's. That's what common grace is, the good he does for humanity. And we see a lot of common grace in our nation. Um, I think they're worth acknowledging and being grateful for. And even having a particular love for our country, I think, is biblical and good. You know, we are a nation that was built on ideas and ideals, Instead of just a, you know, a random a group of people who happened to be living in the same geographical location and they became a nation because of they lived together in the same place. 
Now, we were a nation that was built on ideas and ideals. That's not very common. We're also a nation that does value, a lot of other nations do too, but we value freedom. Freedom is a given dignity. It's a way that God has particularly blessed us as a, as a country and he's used means to do that. But freedom is a beautiful thing. When you are free, you actually become the person God created you to be. Rather than being constrained and becoming someone else's version of yourself. So freedom is a, is a really good and beautiful thing. And a healthy patriotism is appropriate. You know, being thankful to God for the ways that he's been good to us as a country is appropriate. And at the same time, if we want to grow in emotional and spiritual maturity, we have to have a healthy sense of detachment. In other words, we have to remind ourselves frequently that this isn't our ultimate home. There's an important motif in Scripture that is helpful. It's that we are exiles. And exiles are people living in a foreign land that is not their true home. That's how Scripture views Christians. We are exiles. Do your neighborhood good. Do your state good. Do your country good. But that's not home. You're living in a foreign land that is not yours. So your ultimate allegiance is of a heavenly nation. First Peter 1.1 says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles, to people who are in Jesus' family, who have been brought into Jesus' family through his sacrificial death and resurrection, He's saying, all of you who are scattered in various places, you are, you exiles who are part of God's family. I have something to say to you. The author of Hebrews 11 and verses 13 through 16, and these are in your notes if you want to follow along, says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. So he's talking about people who by faith went so far as sacrificing their very lives for God because of the persecution they were facing. They, were, Hebrews 11 says there are people who were sawn in two because they were so committed to Jesus, his ways, his kingdom. Hebrews 11 actually says uh, they, there's a type of person that this world doesn't even deserve. So he's talking about these people. He says they haven't received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That was the disposition, the posture, the attitude that allowed them to make such huge sacrifices for the kingdom. They saw themselves as strangers and exiles on the earth. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Jesus is preparing a new home for us. And it's not here right now, but it will be here one day when Jesus returns. We're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth, according to God's promises. That's 2 Peter 3.13. And we live every moment of our life waiting for that day for him to return. Pledging our allegiance to him and his kingdom first and foremost. Doing good in the neighborhood while we're here. 
First Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, that's someone who stays somewhere on a temporary basis, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 1 Peter 1.17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Philippians 3.20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. When you become a Christian, heaven becomes your true home. You are now no longer primarily citizens of earth or of the United States. Your primary citizenship is a heavenly one. It's comparable to going to college. So I started uh, college in Indiana and then I transferred to a college in, in, uh, in Michigan. So I was like an Ohio resident who was living in exile in Michigan. And I, so I had a certain sense of detachment. I mean, I would watch University of Michigan games with my friends because all my friends were UM uh, fans, but I had a real sense of detachment from how well they did in the game because my true allegiance was actually to the Ohio State Buckeyes. So I didn't, I didn't, it didn't matter how they did. It didn't matter how Michigan did because my allegiance is elsewhere. I mean, I can be a good friend. I can bring the buffalo chicken dip, but actually I wouldn't do that because I didn't know how to cook anything when I was... I'd bring hamburger helper. I could make hamburger helper. I'd bring that. I'd be a good player. I'd be a good citizen. I'd be a good friend. And I would watch the game with him. But man, my citizenship was with Ohio and Ohio State. That's what I cared about. This theme is Christian living in this world as exiles is woven throughout the Bible. It starts way back in the beginning. Adam and Eve lived in a land that God made. The whole purpose of um, a place to call home is that we get to be with Jesus. The whole goal of the Bible is that God wants to live and be with us. And so he created earth to be able to do that. He would walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. And when they sinned and and were disobedient, they were exiled, moved out east of Eden. They were no longer allowed in that land. We see that God created a nation, Israel, who were his people in, a, in an immediate and particular way that will never be duplicated in history. And they, he was moving them towards something, to a promised land, a home, and they got there and they were disobedient and they were exiled. They lived as exiles then. And the same thing is true. The New Testament is filled with this language. And so what I want to do in dealing with this part of the human condition that's difficult, that is that we are living in a land that's not truly our home, is I want to ask the question, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do as exiles? How are we supposed to live as exiles? And uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 8. If you, have, if you don't have a Bible and you grabbed one of the little blue Bibles in the back that we're giving away, um, you can just take one of those and take it home. Uh, it's page 382 in that little blue Bible. You might need a magnifying glass because the writing is very small. The, the print is very small. My bad on that. But we got a good deal. 
It's page 382 in the Little Blue Bible. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 8. This is a classic text. I'm not inventing this. This is like, has been used by thousands of other pastors to talk about this. And we're not going to spend a ton of time in this. Um, but the backdrop is the nation of Israel had been, was living in exile. They were living, they were brought into Babylonian captivity because of their disobedience. And there were some false prophets that were saying things like, it's not going to be that long. God's going to get us out of here soon. He's going to bring us back to our own land soon. God's coming back to get us soon. They were false prophets. And they weren't telling the truth. They were just saying things to make the people and the churches feel better. And God shut it down. He told Jeremiah to go to the people and he said, that's not true. I'm not, you're not returning to your homeland soon. Actually, you're going to be here a while, so you better settle in. False prophets telling us that the Lord is coming back very soon. So don't worry about it. You don't have to stick around here much longer. It's a false prophet. Still happens today if you haven't picked up on that. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 8. He's talking to exiles. And this is comparative to what, how we are supposed to live as spiritual exiles today. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's where the instruction starts. Build houses and live in them. Settle in. Be a part of the community. This isn't your ultimate home, but this is your home. Root yourself. Move into a neighborhood. Live among the people or, or take advantage of where you live. Maybe you don't live in a neighborhood. Do good from wherever you are. But settle in and grow roots. And part of living in a community is having a concern with what's happening in that community. So don't be, involved, don't be uninvolved, you know. Don't be aloof. Participate. Be a good citizen. That's what it means to be a Christian exile. Our responsibility is to be a faithful presence for the kingdom. And to bring about Christian ethics, kingdom ethics, everywhere we go. To make places better. To provide for people to be a good neighbor, to be responsible. So build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. This is just being productive. You know, provide for your family. Create things. Part of our responsibility as exiles is to examine all of the raw material that we have. That's our finances. That's our house. That's our grill, that's our TV, that's our library, that's our snow shovel, that's our lawnmower, that's our skills, that's our opportunities, that's our work. Look at all of the raw materials that God's given you and ask this question, how can I do good to humanity? With all the things that God has entrusted me as an exile, as a Christian that is living in a home that's not really my own, as I'm a steward of all of these things, how can I use it to do good for humanity? For my own family first, and then for my church family, and then for everybody else. I think that's the order biblically. 
How can I use my resources to bless my own family, my church family, and then everybody else, the neighbors, the people that live around me? God's instructing them, the exiles, work with your own hands to provide for yourself and others. And then he says, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. He's saying don't, don't wait for the perfect situation to begin to create a family. The first commandment is still just as re- relevant. Multiply and fill the earth with people. You know, you don't have to wait for the perfect scenario to begin. The perfect scenario is that you're married. And there's something, I think there's a, there's a trend that's popular today, and this is kind of a side thing, but also kind of related, where we're waiting for, young people are waiting longer and longer to begin their, their families, and if you are able to, you don't need to wait for the perfect scenario. There is provision that comes along with steps of faith. And I got to be careful about talking too much about that um, because every situation is different. But there will never be a perfect situation to have kids. It just won't happen. Don't wait until you have your own homeland, Israel. You're in a dangerous place. You're in Babylon, sure. But Trust me and populate the earth. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. If the city is good, if the nation is good, that's good for you too. I mean, that's just kind of common sense stuff and we are to work towards that. A corresponding New Testament passage for that is in 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, and again, that's in your notes. It's, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So it is good for us to pray that you know, we would be a place where the word of God can spread without constraint. And that happens best in times of peace and prosperity. I've said this before, I've had uh, you know, friends that are ministering in different parts of the world that are facing persecution, and you've heard people say things like the story of the one missionary that said, I pray for the United States because you're not facing persecution, and I think you should have persecution because then the gospel spreads faster and broader in that scenario. And my friends that are actually facing persecution don't pray that for us. They pray that we would actually take advantage of the peace that we're experiencing and the freedom that we're experiencing. That's probably a better prayer. Because Paul wouldn't pray for that. He prayed for peace, that we'd be able to live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And we're to work for that. We're to have political discourse. We're to have an opinion. You should have an opinion. We're not... um, 
we're not uninvolved in the conversations. But what I want to make sure that we understand as we're coming to the end of this, the practical application is to be more concerned, be more concerned with a person's salvation in Christ than beating them in a political debate. It's healthy to have political debates, but for disciples of Jesus, the rules of engagement and talking about those things are different. We're to speak with grace and humility and no way demeaning another human being who is made in the image of God. We're to avoid generically lumping a particular group of people into to one category. You know, making fun of someone is absolutely out of bounds for any disciple of Jesus. And being crude in any way is absolutely unbecoming of a disciple of Jesus. Now, there is no circumstance in our lives, there's no conversation where we are permitted by God to turn off and disregard the fruit of the Spirit. We can't choose when we want to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit and when we want to ignore this because this person just needs to be put in their place. Now, we're always to be loving and peaceful and kind and joyful. We don't get to turn that off when it's convenient. There is no circumstance in our lives, there's no conversation where God says, you don't have to demonstrate humility on this one. You don't have to be humble in this conversation. This person really needs to hear it, so don't be contrite, don't be humble, just in this instance. And then afterwards, you can, you can be tender-hearted and gracious and kind again. We don't get to do that. We don't get to call our own shots. We serve a king who died on the cross for his enemies, who took the mocking that came his way without response. Mocking other people is not our responsibility. And I, I think we can leave those things to God. We can speak truth, give our opinion, and leave that to God. You know, Jesus never mocked back, even when he was mocked, but the Father did. It's interesting that after, um, I think it was from noon to 3 p.m. in Golgotha when Jesus was being crucified, after he had been mocked over and over by Roman soldiers and <laughs> everybody, religious leaders, and he didn't say anything in return. From 12 to 3, it was dark. You know who the primary god of the Roman citizen was? The primary god who was responsible for guarding the emperors? The primary god who was responsible for guarding the, na the great nation of Rome? You know who their god was? It was the sun god. The father was mocking them. I'm going to turn the sun god off for a few hours as you are killing my son. God will not be mocked. We have to be really, really careful in this arena, my friends. Christopher Wright says, it's true that we live on a cursed earth, but we also live on a covenanted earth. In other words, because we do live in a cursed earth, our nation, in a lot of ways, is limping under the weight of sin. 
And there will always be a limp. And we cannot fix that through any other means than bringing salvation to people who are in need desperately to hear the gospel of Jesus. We can't fix the root of the real problem. You measure a problem and you decide on the solution for that problem based on what it is. The problem is we're going to die and spend an eternity apart from the very one who wants to give us life. And there's only one solution. And salvation is only to be found in Christ alone. We live in a cursed earth, but also a covenanted earth. That also means that God has made certain problem, uh, promises to us. And the primary promise is that we can have life in Christ. And the way that God made that life in Christ available to us is that he became an exile. God left his home. Jesus left the safety, the security, the abundance, the provision of heaven to become homeless, to become like us, wandering orphans on the earth. Matthew 8, a scribe told Jesus, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holds and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man is homeless. He left home to become homeless. He became an exile. So that becoming homeless for us, he can actually show us the true way home. And he is the true way home. There is no other way. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.